Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. So, so I had Brock, you know Brock Pierce? Yeah, I know him very well. I know him. He's an investor of ours. Oh, great. Yeah. So I had Brock Pierce, you know, back here uh, in the warehouse back there when I had a set uh, a couple years ago. He's like, all I'm doing is buying Bitcoin. You got to buy Bitcoin. And I said, very uh, interestingly, Brock, get the fuck out of here with Bitcoin. Right. What is this nonsense? And then he went on to buy, you know, every Bitcoin he gets hands on. And obviously he was very prescient about it. But the one thing he wasn't able to clear up for me or us, is it an asset class? Is it a store of value? Is it a transfer of value? Yeah. What, all of three, none of the above. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's too soon to be categorized as any of those things. I think it's uh, 10 years from now. I would like to tell you that it's going to be a store of value. Um, you could certainly look at its trajectory and say that it's done a good job of storing value. Uh, it has a lot of volatility to it. And so that gets people concerned. But if you take a 30,000 foot view and you look at where Bitcoin was in 2013 and where it is today, it's certainly been a magnificent performer. But I think if there's something else going on, and I think what Brock would say if he was here is that Bitcoin is fully engaged in the network effect. It's fully engaged in Metcalf's law. And what did Professor Metcalf say, he said that you can value things pursuant to the growth of their network. And so Amazon has a network. It's a retail network. Facebook is a social network. Google is an ad and information and advertising network. What is Bitcoin? Well, you tell me. If it's a monetary network, then the coins will be worth a million dollars a coin. If it's a store of value network, uh, then the coins will be a half a million dollars a coin. If it's neither of those things, somebody would say, well, then it's going to go to zero. Um, maybe, but maybe not. You just got done telling me that these Pokemon cards, some of those boxes are worth tremendous amounts of money. Bitcoin is scarce. It's digital. Uh, you and I are of a generation that is probably not as familiar as the ether, the digital uh, components to life, but we've got three-ish billion gamers out there and people are very comfortable living in the digital world. They're comfortable living in the Roblox houses and swimming in the Roblox swimming pools. And so there are things that will be worth something in the world of digitization. Look at what Peoples did with his piece of artwork, that first NFT. He sold it for $69 million. Jack Dorsey's tweet, they digitized it and they encapsulated it in an NFT. It sold for $2.5 million. But not too dissimilar, you know. Look, look, look at that. Look at that Mickey Mantle card, you know. Right. So let me let me tell you something that'll make you laugh. Okay, yeah. the the 1935 Monopoly game. You had uh, one thousand dollars in that game of Monopoly money. The dollar, in terms of its purchasing power, is down ninety eight percent. If you went to eBay to buy the original paper monopoly dollars okay you would have to pay they you, know, you were buying them in the game they were worthless inside the game you'd have to pay over a thousand dollars for them so the monopoly dollar has gone up while the american dollar has gone down okay so 
So people have to tell me, you know, if they don't want to accept it, they want to pretend that we're in a normative society where things ought to work a certain way. Yeah, our government ought not to borrow 51 cents for every dollar that it's spending. They should not do that, but they are doing it. And so as a result of them doing it, we have to live in a society the way it is, not the way we want it to be. And so we have to adjust ourselves accordingly. So Bitcoin is going to be worth something. Uh, There are too many people, too many players involved. So if I'm right, I think it'll be worth a half a million dollars a coin. If, If I'm wrong, I don't think it's going to zero. And so how do you, it's a pretty crowded market of people raising money for crypto, raising crypto funds. You know, Kathy is at the, say, at the top of the food chain, uh, you know, at the top of the pyramid. You go down a little bit, there's a lot more people. You go down the base and there's a ton of noise, uh, you know, and everybody's trying to combine their barbecue grill website.com with AI machine learning NFT crypto, you know, in order to get some kind of. Uh, to 1999 era at a dot com, mm-hmm. you know, today, you know, add crypto and AI and, right. you know, get a bounce on your barbecue grill manufacturing plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's very noisy uh, down at the bottom. It's noisy in the middle, but, you know, also at the top, there's credible funds. How do you, you know, how are you differentiating really the pitch at the, um, you know, both at the institutional and family office level for, the way you're managing the the crypto asset class, or is there just enough demand that you're sort of letting the people you want in? That'd be, I think that'd be very interesting to. Yeah. So I think, I think it's a really good question, but let me just go with your analogy for one step further. Um, if it's a lot like the dot-com craze of 20 years ago, uh, there were survivors, even though there was a boom and bust cycle. And by March of 2000, the 5,000, NASDAQ went to 2,400. It was down 55%. And the quote unquote dot bomb bubble exploded. Amazon survived. Amazon went down, but Amazon came back and became the killer app for retail. It's controlling 51% of the internet retail expenditures. So uh, I would say that's apropos to the day. There's shit coins out there. There are ICOs that I think are likely to be worthless. There's the e-toys, if you will, pets.com. But then you have Bitcoin and you have Ethereum. And there will be certain players that I think make it to the other side of this thing. And so will they get roughed up on the way? Certainly. There's never been a situation in our society where a new technology has come in and everybody says, oh, that's fantastic. Let's embrace the technology. These stable owners... And the carriage builders were like, this horseless carriage is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, it's a fad. It'll burn itself out. Who wants to drive around like that? Uh, Bill Gates in 1995, he said that the internet was a fad. Uh, Netscape came public. He said, I have no interest in that. It's a fad. Well, it turned out Bill Gates was a fad, but sure. Yeah, but yeah. He, he got that wrong, yeah. and then he, yeah. uh, he adapted and pivoted, right? Yeah. And uh, he, he built Explorer, and he went on to uh, – create tools related to the internet and the cloud and all this other stuff. So what happens is you have early adopters. They'll try anything. They're excited about it. They think it's the future. That could be the people that were wearing the Google glass. You remember the glasses from Google? They were going to change our world. They were going to put in your field of vision, their search capabilities. Well, it turned out that it was too awkward for people. It was giving them headaches. Didn't work. 
Um, but Bitcoin is different, I think. You know, it's a network. It fits the bill for how societies look at money and stores of value. Remember, gold is only worth 5% of its value for manufacturing purposes. The other $7 trillion, $7.3 trillion ascribed to gold is based on society's perception of its store of value. Uh, we know axiomatically that money is never worth what the goods and services are that we're trading for it. Let me let me show. We're we're on a video cast, right? I can show this. So this in my neighborhood, these are known as Italian singles. See those <laughs> Italian singles? Okay. Let's talk about these for a second. This is a piece of fabric. It's uh, it's uh, let me get it in the frame. It's got uh, nylon in it. It's got cotton in it. It's a fabric. It's not paper. There's no paper money. And what's in there? It's a uh, green paint. There's a Ben Franklin. He's not even a president. His picture's on there. There's a counterfeit strip. It's absolutely worthless. Okay, worthless. Okay, however, not to you and me, because I can hand this to you and I can get goods and services out of you or vice versa. Or if I gave this as a tip to the valet tonight, my car's going in the front of the restaurant. If I uh, um, give this to the pizzeria, I'm getting a pizza. If I give it to my landscaper, he's going to cut my grass. It's worthless. So when people say, well, Bitcoin is worthless, what is this worth? What it is, is a trusted network among billions of people that perceive this slip of fabric as worth something. And so once it scales and the network is solidified, and that's what's happening with Bitcoin. Now, the best thing about Bitcoin is I can't make these in, in the Bitcoin world. This is an instant, infinite supply of these. You know how many of the, these were made by the federal government this year? $469 billion dollars was printed by the federal government this year to assuage the societal issues that we have related to the recession and the pandemic. You tell me, is that sustainable long-term? Maybe it is. There's a generation of people younger than you or I that don't think that it is, and therefore they want to move to a different standard. El Salvador, they destroyed their fiat currency. The new government there says, okay, well, we're going to go to something that's more standardized that can't be held to the capricious whims of policymakers or politicians. So I think, you know, most of the people that I, you know, get in this conversation with you know, are of this direction that sure it's worth something, but I would say, you know, not long ago, I don't know, five, six years ago, I acquired 27 hotels in 18 months with a partner. And so if you think about acquiring an asset and you know, I looked on Wikipedia, you have some physical assets, you know, so then it's incumbent on you to build a pro forma and say, these are our assumptions. Um, this is, you know, uh, this is our cost of capital. This is our cap rate. This is how we project our exit. This is what we think the market does. This is our competition. This is how the asset, you know, performs over time and how we increase the value of it. And when we think we've maximized the value and are in an exit path. So those are traditional Acquire an asset, yeah. mature it, season it, and either you know retain it if it continues to do well, or have an exit analysis. So how when you're when you're raising capital? So I don't think anybody that I'm involved with disagrees that there's stored value, that there's asset value to some degree. There's transfer value in crypto, specifically Bitcoin, as sort of the the, the apex predator in in crypto. Um, but but how do you then raise capital for a fund without the tools of traditional 
so I, I mean, I'm acquiring two shipping vessels, you know, in energy. And so we're just like this exact same exercise. You know, I'm acquiring a fintech company, not quite the same, but we have customers and we have revenue and we have advertising metrics. And then we have, you know, historical NOI and we have a competitive set and we have a pretty good understanding of how the firm will grow given, you know, we do a good job executing, but it seems like all those traditional tools are not available in pitching a crypto, you know, either the currency or a fund that invests in the currency. What's the, uh, you know, what's the architecture for a pitch in digital assets in your mind? Well, I think, you know, and there's a lot of different pitches. You know, you mentioned Kathy Wood, uh, NIDIG, uh, the, the Kathy's research or NIDIG's research. I would implore your listeners and viewers to look at it. Um, you know, I'm not going to do it a service in two minutes, but I think the pitch is the network effect. The pitch is Medcast law. Uh, Apple works because of Medcast law. Uh, Google works because of Medcast law. When, when Professor Medcalf explained to people that there is fundamental value in the network. Let me give you a vivid example of that. Let's take an old fashioned network like Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is a network. Now, you and I, I could produce a soda with the same formula as Coke and call it Orin Cola. Sure. And we're not going to get the market share. But Coca-Cola, the word Coke is the second most recognized word in the English language or the phrase in the English language other than OK. So it's OK is number one. Coke is number two. So let's say you and I took this old-fashioned network and destroyed it. We ripped up all their bottling plants, blew up everything, blew up their corporate offices, destroyed their trucks. And then we walked over to a Wall Street firm and said, we have these words, Coca-Cola. Could you help us raise a billion dollars? We're going to restart this thing. We would get the money. So let's say we had a URL, cars.com, uh, StreamYard, SkyBridge, uh, these, these URLs, we proved 20 years ago that these URLs are worth something, you know, uh, you pick, pick the word, but Anthony, all it is is a word and it's a destination on the internet. Yes, but it'll collect traffic. Bitcoin has scaled. Bitcoin's got 125 million sure. users. So my pitch is a understand money, understand what's happening to fiat currency in our lifetime, understand the scarcity of Bitcoin understand the impregnability of its safety in terms of its transferability. Also understand that it's not the lucre of money launderers and schemers. Look at what just happened to the Colonial Pipeline ransomware people. They found them and they got their Bitcoin. They didn't hack the keys. You know, they, they had a very good understanding of who the Russian hackers were that hacked there. They identified their email traffic, and then they were able to take their Bitcoin. So as Mike Morell said, the former CIA director, uh, this nonsense that Bitcoin is uh, devoid of knowledge and right. you know capable of all this anonymity, yeah. dollars capable of anonymity. Take those Italian singles and put them in a briefcase and hand them to somebody. That's less traceable than Bitcoin. So, so to me, my pitch to people is, listen, we've improved everything in our lives. More or less. Some things have been made worse. You could argue if you're a Luddite, but take a look at this phone. See it? That phone can eat up every single book in this library. And then there's room for pictures. Then there's room for videos, home videos, music videos. Uh, but then there's more. I've got apps in there. I've got games in there. This device 
is an earth-shattering miracle, and it's too good to be true. Uh, and so when people are investing, they say, well, don't invest in things that are too good to be true. Well, what about the phone? What about Apple? Apple went from $10,000 on its IPO to $21,140,000 today, 24 years later. But you had to stomach eight turns where Apple dipped below 50% of its uh, from of its 52-week high. But you had to stomach that. So to me, my message is this is networking. This is a networking effect. It's grown to 125 million. It's on its way to a billion. It's scarcity. And so the result of which it will be worth more. And if the Satoshi Nakamoto was right, just read his uh, his uh, white paper. Sorry about that. But just read his white paper. If Satoshi Nakamoto is correct, you, 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 you're going to have the Bitcoin standard. El Salvador believes that. So if I'm listening to this, Oren and Anthony talking about, uh, you know, crypto. They're, they're thinking that Oren needs my skin products. That's what they're thinking. If they are, well, I would say, I would say if you're that, you deep, I mean, look, you know, uh, um, we, we see a lot of deals today and evaluate stuff. I'd say if you're that deep in crypto, I don't know why you do a skin product, but it's a different, you know, conversation, you know, unless you're personally you passionate know, I'm, about I'm, it. I'm, 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 I'm only doing it for you. This would be a, a skin product that would be exclusive for you. Believe me, I, I need products in other areas first. So, Okay, well, I mean, you're going to have to go to pharmaceutical companies for that, okay? I can only offer the non-drug-oriented yeah, right. stuff. Believe me, I, I'm on it. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, uh, I, that's why I have the uh, that part of search, you know, that doesn't show up in history. So so I'm watching Orrin and Anthony talk about um, crypto, and, and I want to get in, but, you know, I'm not buying – a twenty-four or $60,000, uh, you know, Bitcoins as a point of entry where, so somebody's enamored with this. They do think it's a future of, of finance. They do agree with your perspective that it's a network effect, but the, the, the cost of entry is too high for, for, you know, kid entering a couple guys around the office, you know, they're ex beginning their careers in finance. Where would you direct them to, uh, I wouldn't say safely get started, but mitigate their exposure so they have enough time, you know, to get familiar and enough time to pattern match and and understand the trades without going in once looking for a big gulp return, not getting it and then bowing out too quickly. How do you, uh, where would you, from your perspective, uh, suggest those kids get a point of entry that's sustainable? So I think it's a brilliant question. And so if it's on small dollar amounts, I would recommend a place like BlockFi or Coinbase. Um, I think those uh, places can accommodate people. BlockFi actually has a credit card there. Uh, and so you can make your purchases and get a rebate in Bitcoin, which I think is a pretty nifty idea. BlockFi is growing very fast. Uh, I will point out that I'm an investor in both of those companies personally. So I just, uh, full disclosure. But what I would say is get started. You know, I grew up, you know, in the middle class. My dad was a laborer. He was an hourly worker. Uh, I would never dishonor his work ethic, Orrin, by telling you I grew up poor. I did not grow up poor. But we had a budget. And if my dad's work hours got cut, well, you know, things around the house got cut. If he had extra overtime, maybe we got the Schwinn bicycle. You know, it was up and down uh, pursuant to his labor. Um, but why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because I didn't have any meaningful money as a kid. When I went to Tufts, I had to borrow the money. When I went to Harvard, I had to borrow the money. 
Uh, and when I got out, I said, okay, how am I going to start from minus zero to get myself to a meaningful net worth? And there's a couple of simple ways to do that. And that is you're going to make a decision to pay yourself first. And so if I make $1,000, I made a decision, every $1,000, $100 went to a mutual fund or it went into a savings account or I bought Disney stock with it or whatever it was. And what I would tell young people today, you have to make that decision. You know, Buy less tokens on Fortnite or V bucks or whatever they're called. And just say, you know what? I'm going to put $100 a week away in something. It doesn't have to be necessarily Bitcoin. It could be an ETF. It could be a stock and bond ETF. It could be anything. But what ends up happening, if you take that philosophy in your 20s, the money begets money and it starts to aggregate and snowball. And when it starts to happen in a magnificent way, it'll take some pressure off you. You're also training yourself to live with less um, because what we find is that we don't need that much. You know, what are you going to buy? A second dinner? You know, let's say you're worth a billion dollars. Okay, that's great. Mazel tov. How many planes? How many houses? How many pieces of art? What are we doing with the stuff? Okay. And ultimately, it's almost the universe telling you something uh, that there's simplicity. We know that the best ideas are simple ones, uh, we know that the best concepts are simple. And we know that when we're simplifying our lives, we think more clearly. So for me, I would tell young people, you want to get rich, you want to be financially independent, start saving. Uh, is Bitcoin a, a good place to do that? Yes. Is it going to have volatility and risk? Yes, it will. Uh, but that's what I would do. I'd open up a BlockFi account or a Coinbase account. And full disclosure, I have uh, ownership in both. And um, I just opened my BlockFi account. I'm waiting for my credit card. So, so, but that's what I would do. And do your, thank you. Appreciate that. And I think uh, I would agree with that. And uh, if you're listening to this, that's a great place to start. Uh, and if you lose, uh, you know, if your, if your investment goes down, then uh, call me and I'll give you Anthony's number and uh, you talk to him about it. But uh, no, <laughs> so what, and do your kids have a budget? Yeah, well, by the way, this is not investment advice. I just said that uh, on behalf of SkyBridge Compliance. I'm just past offering performance of an asset does not indicate uh, clear future performance, and you should not rely on past performance in order to make this investment. Click here for acknowledgement. Thank you very much. Uh, and some foreseeable impacts may exceed this helmet's ability to protect the user from certain injury or death. There you go. Uh, there are two disclaimers that yeah, I like. To give. That, so what you just read, I went to law school, and I only learned two things in law school. Can I tell you what they are, Warren? Yeah. The first one was don't be a lawyer. That was the first thing I read. <laughs> and then the second thing was avoid lawsuits. Okay, yeah. That was the second thing. So so the point being is that like, yeah, you got to read that. And everyone wants to sue each other. and Everyone's angry with each other all the time. But don't focus on any of that either. Just focus on the simple stuff. One last point on this. Uh, my 80-year-old mentor at Goldman is a terrific guy. He's a young, he's 80 years young. Uh, he told me something that I never forgot, and I will share it with everybody. Hit the target from 10 feet. Take the gun. You got the target. Hit the target from 10 feet. You don't have to outsmart yourself. You don't have to buy XYZ <coughs> I, you know, coin, initial coin offering. You have to buy the latest ICO that's going to beat everything. The target. There's Bitcoin. Shoot at the target. Excuse me one second. <coughs> Um, yeah, so that's, so my, that's my point. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, and 
and so turning this around and just something stuck uh, in my mind that you said. So you, do your kids have a budget? Does your seven-year-old, you know, have a – I mean, obviously he doesn't have a uh, – you know, can, can walk. But if he says he wants something and he needs it, does he basically assume he's going to get it? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah, because I am a helicopter parent. I'm a total jackass. I have two parenting stimuli. One is bribery and the other one is threatening. Okay, that's how I parent. Okay, so, um, you know, I had a tight budget. I didn't grow up with a lot. Again, I, we were in the middle class. So I have showered my kids with stuff. Yeah. Has that been the right decision or not? I don't know the answer to that. You have to interview me in 30 years. But here's what I do know. The adult kids are motivated. They're very hardworking. I think the reason why they're hardworking is they're programmed for hard work. But I also think they do observe their parents. You know, their parents are hardworking. And so they got to say to themselves, what the hell am I going to do? My point is you're going to have a decent amount of money. Is that going to be enough? So, so when this, you, when this you wake up in the morning, what do you want to do? I yeah. want to help people build teams, talk to people like you, very smart people over the airwaves. I want to write some books. I want to build an asset management company and grow it. I stupidly went into the White House. I thought that that was going to be helpful. It was not. Um, I'm not being cynical. I'm just not wired to be a politician or a public servant. So I'm wired to be an entrepreneur. Let's stay in that lane. But can I guess you something? Let's do that. You mentioned that. You notice I didn't bring that up at all. Yeah, you uh, could bring it up. My, I, think, my, I think it's a case study in how you get your ass kicked and you dust yourself off and you get up and you move on. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think my peer group is mainly, uh, you know, 20 to $100 million guys just because of business I'm in. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, nobody cares about that stuff. You know, they care about um, the. I, I have never heard anything negative you know, about the short timers there or, you know, a perspective on that. And they just really look at the bigger career arc and what you're really doing and what the values are. And, you know, they try and connect activity to values to career arc. And if those three dots tie together, they go, eh, good guy would like, you know, would, would give the guy a chance to work. I think, I think you're, I think you're, yeah. I think you're very insightful. And I think you're describing the human emotions and the travails of what actually happens. And I think the smartest among us, and by the way, I'm not saying this is me. I am aspiring to be this. I'm not, I'm not a sanctimonious person where I'm going to tell you, oh, you should do this, but I'm not doing it myself. I'm trying to do it is to take yourself out of the game. You know, one of the, one of the, in the serious note, one of the real good things I learned in law school, if you're being cross-examined, the attorney is trying to egg you on, ire you, incite your anger. He is play acting. He's hoping you're going to unspool in front of the jury, and therefore the testimony that you just gave will be discredited by the jury. And so it's an act. It's kabuki theater. But a lot of life is kabuki theater. And sure. so your goal when you're in there being cross-examined is to play act back. Don't show emotion, show dispassion and show clinical assessment of something. Well, you know this better than anybody. You have to do that in the investment world too. You know, when I got blown from the White House, I could have reacted emotionally. And I think that would have had great consequence. I didn't do that. I reacted uh, dispassionately. I said, okay, this is what I did wrong. Let me own what I did wrong. 
but let me not make the mistake that Billy Bush made or others. Let me not go dark. Let me get right back up on the horse and start talking to people about what I think. Well, I think that's great. I mean, it's an Eminem song. Like, you know, if you take, yeah, you slept with my mom. I drive a shitty car. I sleep in a, you know, I live in a trailer. My clothes, you know, are secondhand. What else? What else would you like right. to talk about? hundred percent. Right. Just get in front of it. It's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting strategy because what we're hiding, guess what? Other people are hiding it too. And so when you put it all out on the table, the first reaction is, oh, okay, I have a lot of that stuff. I identify with this person. I have empathy for this person. This is like, you know, there, there's all these concerns about privacy today. <laughs> like for me, I'm not too concerned about it. Like you can come, you can put a camera in my house. I mean, try and keep it out of the bedroom, but put it in the bedroom. You're not going to see anything. You know, I got a wife and a kid. You're not going to see, you're going to get turned that video feed off pretty soon. <laughs> uh, you know, you can watch it. You, you, you can put cameras in my house. You can read my text. I mean, I you're, ob you're obviously not Italian. I can't have anybody put a camera in my bedroom. I mean, I'd say, you know, obviously my wife will get mad, but I don't know what you're going to see in there. That's going to be, you know, worth an only fans page. If, if you're transparent and you're accountable, oh, and, but and, vulnerable, yeah. you know, it's and not just, yeah. I think it's vulnerable. I think at the end of the day, if you're willing to, you have enough self-confidence to express your vulnerability, you can build a lot of relationships because people are searching for the same things. You know, we, whether you're rich or poor, you're human. You're living the human condition and the trials and tribulations of it. You know, one of the sadder stories was Bill Gates talking about his mom 20 plus years ago. She died of breast cancer. I think Charlie Rose at the time interviewed him. Both of those guys have had a rough time reputationally since then. But let me take you back to that moment. Charlie Rose interviewed him and said, you know, I'm one of the richest per people in the world, if not the richest. Uh, there was nothing I could do on planet Earth to save my mom's life. She died an ill-timed death. She didn't live to what we would have hoped would have been her natural life expectancy. Uh, and there was no amount of money in the world that I could supply because we had not figured out the appropriate drug therapies for whatever disease that she had related to her breast cancer. So, so the point I'm making, rich or poor, you are living as a human being encapsulated on this temporal planet. And a result of which that should make each of us sympathetic to each other. I'm not trying to be overly philosophical, but I tell my kids, you want to build relationships with people, be real with them. Break down the barrier. Uh, I find sometimes I could walk into a room, Oren, people have already made an opinion of me. They've read about me. They didn't like my Twitter feed. They thought I was a buffoon to work for Donald Trump, or now they dislike me because I think Donald Trump is a buffoon. It doesn't matter. They don't know me. Now they meet me, and then hopefully they'll form a different opinion, and maybe it'll be a better one, and in some cases it'll be a worse one, or maybe it will confirm what they think, but I would rather put it all out there and let the person make the decision. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good, healthy way to live. So that's awesome. It triggered a, a couple questions in my mind. Uh, for, do you have a technique? I mean, I know uh, I have, so I don't want to put ideas or words in your mouth. Like when you do walk in a room and there is a preconceived notion about you. Uh, and I think the, the CEOs we work with, you know, cause we, we help companies raise money or go public or sell themselves mm -hmm. or, you know, sell or raise capital is a big, yeah. thing, right? And so they walk in a room. And the most common thing is that the investors or the buyers sort of have forgot all the material and go, I'm sorry, could you start at the beginning? And there's no framing. It's a blank sheet of paper. 
and the meeting can't really be effective because now they have to go all the way back and cover the basics. So the meeting can't really go into the depths of the company because they just got to cover, hey, we're you know a, a fintech company. We've got $30 million in revenue. We're growing 30% year over year. We're trying to do a $25 million recapitalization. But they, but they have to cover all that, and there's no time left to really get into the, the meat. Um, so either there's no preconceived notion or more problematically, it's negative. Any quick ideas from from your perspective? Well, I mean, listen, I, mean I, 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 I haven't thought about it from a process engineering point of view. Yeah. Um, so I don't have like a formula, but I think when I'm reflecting upon it intuitively, it's a little bit of the uh, M&M. It's one part M&M. It's one part uh, I have found if you have a sense of humor, it goes a long way with people, particularly if you're not worried about having a sense of humor at your own expense. You know, when I'm on Stephen Colbert and he wants to kill me because he hates Trump and he says, well, Mooch, did you think you were going to last a long time in the White House? I'm like, Stephen, I thought I was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator, you know, and all of a sudden the room lights up, you know, and then he lightens up. He recognizes that I'm not, you know. I'm not hiding my foibles. I'm not hiding my faults. And so I think it's a, I think it's one part. Uh, but here's something I would tell you, and you know this, okay, because you are natively intelligent, but you're also natively uh, intuitive. So you know this already. There's a switch in your head. You meet somebody, there's a switch in your head. Phony, or is this, a, this is a decent person, man or woman, I want to have a beer with the person or a drink. Phony. Let's go buy a drink. And you do and you do it all day, you know, and you sure. meet the people. So phony. And, you know, right away, if I, if someone is trying to smooth over something or pretend something about themselves doesn't exist or, you know, let me explain it. It wasn't my fault. None of it. It was everybody else's fault in the room and it wasn't me. And I was like, phony. The person comes in the room. Yeah, I own that. I made a stupid decision. So, so By the way, what I said about Steve Bannon was fucking yeah. one of the funniest things I've ever said. But yeah. and by the way, it was fake news. Look at me. Steve yeah. Bannon couldn't do what I said. I mean, look, at, there's no chance he could do what I said. He's not into hot yoga. But I mean, you know, I said it. I said it to somebody I trusted. The guy went and ran over to CNN with it. That's my bad. I own it. No, fuck that guy. So, so you know, and, and it's good that you own it. I guess, tell me if you agree with this or not. Uh, you know, I... Um, I have to get on calls from time to time, you know, with billionaires, lots of times with guys controlling billions of dollars. Not sure their attitude is any different, uh, but certainly very frequently guys were, you know, 40 to $150 million. There seem to be more of those guys than you would think. And I try and get ahead of this by finding some incongru incongruous thing that they've got on their website and then what they're saying. And so from a process standpoint, I call them out and I, I, I try and get ahead of them running that power frame on me or making casting judgment on me by saying, hey, I'm confused. I look at your website. We'll give you a perfect example. Uh, so I go to Founders Fund, you know, with Peter Thiel and um, Luke Nosek and those guys. And uh, they start giving the company that I have there a ton of shit uh, for their financials and giving them a hard time and not wanting to put the next round of capital in. It's what they've already invested in, being very hard on the company's CEO. He's in genetics. It's a tough deal, a very competitive market. And so I say, Luke, I I'm confused. Look at your website. 
You say on the website, we are the founders fund. We're founders friendly. We know what it's like to be a founder. Here you have a guy who you're already investing in, you know, is doing the best he can and, and you're grinding on him as if you're a, uh, a private equity firm. Right, you know, VC. And, yep. and VC. And so which is it? Are you the founder friendly fund, right? Or you want to grind because we're confused about you. So is that a credible technique in your mind to call people out? on their values, if they're, if they're acting and saying two different things to, to sort of get ahead, because I find those guys are my, my last slides, they're just naturally going to put power frame and pressure on you because that's the way they're built. Not yeah. a lot of guys like you who are smooth and, and value driven. And I'm really that enjoying this conversation. Fa- fa- I'm talking over you. Fascin- it's a fascinating yeah. question. So again, I want to react to it intuitively more than from yeah. a process, but what I would say to you, um, and man, I'll probably get in trouble for this if my son is listening to this. So I have a 22-year-old son yeah. who goes by Mooch. You can find him uh, on Twitter at Mooch World, or you can go to Instagram and find him at Mooch. Okay, so he's stolen all that stuff. Yeah, and not stolen. He's taken it. He's better at it than me. He is a videographer in the music industry. He's done videos for Travis Barker, Machine Gun Kelly. His last two music videos trended to number one in the world. Now I probably sound like I'm bragging about him. I'm just trying to frame it for you, okay? So he's got this creative skill, this directorial skill, but he doesn't have the administrative functionality, which makes sense because lots of people that have creative skills don't have that functionality. So rather than me hitting him with a stick and saying, you got to have that, let's find somebody, okay? And the person that he's working with is rough on the furniture, Okay, he has sharp elbows. Well, yeah. that does happen. Okay, yeah. but it's also or in another twenty-two-year-old. So I have assessed that the guy is a good guy, and he's sowing his oats. He's finding his way. So now it's my job to be the best version of myself and coach him. Okay, and so, but if I thought he was a bad guy and the wrong fit for my son, I would say this is the wrong guy. Let's try to eliminate this guy from your life. You see what I'm saying? So now let's go back to the Founders Fund now that I've framed it for you. If the guy is a good guy and he's operating off of a value-based system that you just described that's flawed, I'm interested in coaching him. I'm less interested in judging and eliminating him. If he's a bad guy, okay, and he's just doing that in a nefarious way where he's posting one thing, but he's doing a different thing, then I want to move on. But I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt that there might be some room. And by the way, he may be incredibly talented. You know, I've got people in my office that I think can be rough on the furniture, but they're super effective at what they do. Do I want them with tons of fabric softener in their bodies to soften them up? And now all of a sudden they're not as effective. Maybe I don't want that. Maybe I need some heavies in the office. You see what I'm saying? But it sounds like what you're describing is the guy is running a little bit of a false advertising campaign, and either yeah. he he's, he should be called out on it and given the opportunity to reform it, and then if he's not willing to reform it, then you got to blow him out. Well, I do feel like in finance, I, I feel like finance, and tell me if you agree with this, everybody's a heavy, right? You got, I mean, you are an anomaly. I talked to a lot of hedge fund managers, private equity guys, you know, we're on a, like you a couple calls a day, you know, talking where there's 30, 40, 50 million dollars at stake. And the guys on the other side are always running a heavy game, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. they're um, 
either they're trained to do it or the, the nature of it. And so I feel like coming into that system, you have to come in throwing, you know, being being prepared for that heavy game right off the bat. Otherwise, you you just get backed up. Yeah, well, I'm not – look, you know, I, I don't believe in it, okay, because we're talking about our kids. I don't want my kids to grow up to be dicks. Right. And if you act like an asshole in business yeah. and you act like a heavy in business – and then you think you can go home and you can switch it off. And all of a sudden you're Robert Young from Father's Knows Best or Leave it to Beaver. Not going to happen. And so I would rather be consistent across the board of who I am and what I'm doing. And if I've missed a few deals, that's fine. And if I've gotten a few deals, that's fine. But I think I'm delivering results for my clients. I'm doing it in an honest and ethical way. And I will tell you this, okay, and this is a big lesson for your listeners, you will be a happier person and you will also have friends always. You know, if I was a heavy and a dickweed, let's use that very professional formal expression, and I got my ass fired from the White House and humiliated the way I did, uh, I don't think there would have been anybody there to catch me, Orrin. I think, you know, when you're, you know, when you're, you're not nice to people on the way up, you're going to see the same people on the way down. Or there I was coming down. And there were a lot of guys there, men and women, trying to catch me. I'm like, hey, man, you were a good guy to me. What can I do to help you through what you're doing right now? And so I'll leave you with this one last thought. I mean, we can talk forever, but on this topic, one last thought on this topic. I'm 35. I'm 57 now. So that was 22 years ago. Uh, Ka Shing Lee, Lee Ka Shing, the property tycoon, I get a meeting with him. My colleague calls me. I'm in Hong Kong. It's a Sunday morning. You're going to go meet the old man. I'm super excited. Mr. Lee's now 92. I put my suit on. I go to his office. He's just got done playing golf on the uh, mainland in, in Kowloon. And we're having a cup of tea. And it's a Sunday morning. Anthony, what do you think of the market? This is the richest, most successful person in Hong Kong. He's now Superman. Warren Buffett is the Lee Ka Shing of America, right? Do you have your sense of the scale of this guy? What do you think of the market, Anthony? So, Warren, I look at him, I say, okay, man, if I'm talking in this meeting, this is going to be the worst meeting of my career. I'm 35. This guy's 70. What the hell is he going to learn from me? So I turned to him. I said, you know, Mr. Lee, the market could go up or down. Uh, we both know that. But I'm 35. You just turned 70. You're twice my age. What could I learn from you, sir? What could I take from you in this meeting that I can take with me for the next half of my life? Okay? And now, all of a sudden, the meeting becomes interesting. He sits back. He starts telling me his career, how he was building these plastic flour, exporting them. And then he realized that there was a, a riot in 1968. And so there was time to buy property in Hong Kong when all the property prices were falling. And he says, so what I'm going to tell you, Anthony, is leave money on the table for your partners. Because if you leave money on the table for your partners, you're always going to have partners. You're always going to have people to do business with. You want to be that heavy that you described the hedge fund guy? You want to nickel and dime that last guy? It's not healthy. And let me tell you something. You may get the nickel. You know, we're negotiating and you're pushing me for the nickel and I give you the nickel. And you're going to be miserable. You know why, Ant? Because you're going to want two nickels. 
It's never going to be enough. It's a great, and, and, it's I, a great and I'm idea. sitting here at age 70. Yeah. I leave the money on the table and yeah. I pick up the phone. There's a hundred people a day that want to do business with me. And so that's something you're young or old, but your young listener should really take to heart. You know, is it, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I'd like, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Uh, and I think everybody who, who's gotten to some measure of success has had to live through some version of that. I know when I was 35, I was a super aggressive pitch man for, for equity. And uh, we had a deal we were selling and um, you know, I told my partner, Hey, there's, so, he was older. There's so much demand for this deal. You know, I can sell it at a four cap. Right. And uh, you know, I can raise all $20 million at a four cap. And, and you know, now our $3.4 million payday is going to turn into 5.8. And he, and he would say, don't do that. And I'd say, why I can like, I've generated the demand. I've built the pitch. It's a great asset. You know, I've, I've, I've laid the foundation. He said, don't be a pig, leave something on the table. So, Smart. so I think everybody's. Yeah, I see, and, and I, and I, I yeah. love it because, you know, you, you identify with it. And the other thing is it makes you better as a person, it makes you better as a person. It makes you, you know, and back your friends when they're in trouble, by the way, that's another thing. You know, I've got buddies of mine. You don't think I've been, I'm an Italian from Long Island. You, think I, you haven't been to a prison or, or of course I have, but you don't walk away from your friends. You back your friends when they're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, you I know, think you don't be a weenie, you know, share, share some, share yeah. some stories there. So um, I have two last quick questions. And I'll let you get on to your day. What is your day? No, you're at the end of your day. Well, I'm sort of in the middle part of my day. You know, I, I get up at 5.30. I try to hit the gym. Then I eat breakfast. I'm a, I'm a breakfast person. Some people are not. Uh, and then I start with a series of sales meetings. And then I have uh, my compliance meetings. I'm very big on compliance at our firm. I think it's the number one thing. Keep your reputation square. Uh, and then I do some media things like this. Uh, but I do a lot of presentations, macroeconomic pre presentations. We're building our SALT conference right now. I, yesterday, I visited the new Javits Center, the Jacob Javits Center, the VIP extension, which looks like one of the most world-class conference facilities. And I've been yeah, to a beautiful. lot of conference facilities. It's beautiful. And so we're going to be, uh, We have. I just signed the chain smokers. Uh, they're going to be doing the uh, entertainment at our conference. And so I'm in the process of lining up the speakers. I'm making a lot of calls today related to that. Um, I'm talking to FAs around the country that we sell our products to. Uh, we're about to launch an Ethereum fund. Uh, we have a Bitcoin fund. We're about to launch an Ethereum fund on July 1st. And so I'm, I'm involved in the marketing and launch of that. I interviewed uh, General Honore. I don't know if you recall yeah, that name, the Lieutenant General. He was... Yeah. Uh, they call him Category 5, General Category 5. Uh, he is working on the 6th of January insurrection investigation, what the oh, Capitol wow. Police yeah. needed to do better. And so I interviewed him for my SALT Talk series, uh, which I interviewed uh, Commissioner Bratton last week. I try to pick a few people a week to interview, post up on our YouTube channel. Um, because I want to be in that thought leadership space and I want to hear from some of the best and brightest minds out there. That's my day. You know, and then obviously I, I try to I power down and try to spend time with the kids and the family. But you know what? Some days I don't do that. I work until nine or 10 o'clock at night. You know, I'm on the phone and uh, talking to Sam Bankman Freed, who I want to say thank you to. He's one of the largest uh, crypto exchanges. He's based out of Hong Kong. 
He just uh, sponsored our event, the SALT Conference. So I may be on the phone with him at 8 o'clock at night, which is 8 a.m. his time in Hong Kong. That's awesome. Uh, and it's a very different conversation with you than what I expected uh, from, you know, sort of the media and some of the other impressions. Very centered, value-driven, not, you know, salesy, focused. Uh, really, really fantastic conversation. I've, well, you get profiled in the media, my brother. You know yeah. that. You get profiled. You know, I, I, you know, go look at my resume. If I had no hair and I wasn't Italian and my last name was different and you read my academic background and you looked at my resume, you'd have a different opinion of me. But, you know, I have a Long Island accent. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. You know, I, I you know, I got my ass kicked and I've done some ass kicking. And so, you know, you get, you get profiled. I get it. And I, by the way, I'm cool with that. I don't give a shit about it. I, I, I'm just pointing it out. And I would tell other people, if you're bummed out about being profiled yeah. or you feel you're being ethnically stigmatized, who cares? Just go, no self-pity. Just go live your life. Scaramucci, that's Comanche Romanian. That's the origins of that. <laughs> Scaramucci, it, it actually, that was something they were teasing about on the white. It actually means, means small skirmish, believe it or not. And there was a, a, a character in the Camita della Arte called La Scaramuccia, and he always came out of the stage to start a fight. And so- Maybe I'm appropriately named. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's 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 a funny last name in Italy. Let's put it that way. Well, now it need, now it means big skirmish. So so two other quick questions. So so look here, motherfucker. Um, swearing, <laughs> swearing. Yeah. I start. Uh, it, it, I swear quite a bit. Uh, I use it strategically. They I say think it's a sign of intelligence. By the way, I'm going with that because I swear all the time. I I swear all the time, but there's a place and a time yeah to do it and there's a way to do it some people just swear awkwardly yeah like they're they're trying to just get it out and they got yeah. it out and it's, it's sitting on the table like on a, this you could be honest man i don't know sometimes it just comes out of my mouth you know I right don't. right so i think it has to flow right but uh uh do you have an opinion on it i mean does it offend if you're interviewing somebody yeah. you're interviewing somebody for a position yeah. right you guys are, are it's mid-interview uh you're not talking about families and everything and they they swear uh, in the interview. So yeah. is uh, it, it depends. You know, if it's yeah. well placed, and if I get the guy's personality or the woman's personality, I'm probably okay with it. So you know, cursing is one thing, but also being you know, you got to be at the right level of formality at the right times in a situation. I think my sense of it is, whenever it lifts the situation up, adds some levity, adds some tone adds just an ex, you know an exclamation point to if it's bitter or it's self-serving then i find it falls flat yeah it's if a good it's point. for every if it's for you it's for you if you're swearing for you mm -hmm. then it falls flat if you're swearing for everybody then it can be a lot of fun yeah so, I, so, I think it's i think i see you know it's interesting because you're a pro, you seem pretty process oriented you know you you have some really good thoughts that are a little bit more formulaic than than mine, but I agree with what you're saying. I think that's actually true when I think about it. Well, I uh, you know I speak at a lot of conferences, so I have to have something to talk about, and people want formulas to take away. So, mm -hmm. so uh, last thing, you know, presumably you could just you know get a get a um, iridium phone and disappear to some island and turn it on, you know, twice a year at Easter and Christmas, and and you know do that. 
so why why still show up to work? I mean, I find like ever I have a I have a friend who's so, selling his company this week. He's gonna get a hundred million dollar check on Friday, not a check, a wire on Friday, and it's awesome. They just email like, hey, what's your wiring instructions? Like, you know, he's just replying the email with his wiring instructions for a hundred million dollars, right? And he's calling me and going, you know, on two, I'm gonna take a day off, and on Tuesday I got a couple ideas for something we can get started, right? What, yeah. what is that? What? Why don't you have an Iridium phone, a boat? Yeah, it's, it a, it's a really, it's a really good question. Some people are wired for that. Yeah, and some people are wired for work. You know, David Rubenstein, uh, one of the founders of Carlisle, he has this wonderful sign. He has this beautiful house in Nantucket on the Bluff. Obviously, an incredibly wealthy man. He's in his seventies now. You go to the front door, and there's a sign on the door. It says, "Rather be working." There's this beautiful vacation house. And some people are wired for work and other people are not. And yeah. so I happen to be wired for work. Maybe it's DNA, maybe it's habits. My 94-year-old uncle who ran a motorcycle shop when I was a kid and I worked for him, he lied about his uh, draft, he lied on his draft card to get into the army. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge in December of 1945. He's 94 today, born in 1927. And he is a... A uh, big believer in work. You know, he drives around in his truck. He drives around in a sidecar, and he thinks the work keeps him alive and keeps him fresh and keeps him sharp. I know other people. They drop the work. They go to fish. They get the iridium phone. They're the happiest that they've ever been in their life, and they live another fifty years. But I know people that do that, and all of a sudden they start decaying, and they lose their mojo. I think it's 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 up to you. But I, I believe entrepreneurs are picking things that they dreamed about doing. And so when I was a kid, am I doing exactly what I dreamed about? No, but it's in the right sleeve. It's in the right genre. And so therefore, when I'm getting up in the morning, I don't feel like I'm working. You see what I mean? Totally and right. I, and, I, and I tell my kids this, you know, like my son is a videographer. He dropped out of college to be a videographer that goes against the establishment of the consensus, but not against me. Yeah. You know, I live by the immortal words of what Mel Brooks talks about. Mel Brooks, the American comedian is my philosopher King and he's got the best line ever. Relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. Relax. Yeah, it's great. And just think about it. Right. So what am I doing? What am I going to do today? Is this fulfilling? Is this going to help me? Is it going to help others? Yeah. Then I want to do it. And for my kids, if that's your dream, go do it because you're going to blink. You're going to be 90. You look back and say, what the hell happened? You know, and uh, and I want them to say, hey, I gave it my best shot and went for something. And one of the things I will tell everybody on this call, I haven't reached every one of my dreams. But the fact that I'm going for it is invigorating. It is stimulating. And the fact that I have been thrown from the horse, metaphorically, and, you know, I mean, look at what happened to me at the White House. I got ejected like an Austin Powers villain, skinned alive, and then rolled in margarita salt. Okay, so what? Here I am. You know, don't live with any regret either. I don't wake up in the morning, Orrin, and say, okay, let me kick myself in the pants today. I stupidly got fired from the White House four years ago. Let me be self-pitying and smack myself in the ass this morning. I don't do that. I say, okay, that happened. I learned from it. Let's move on. I want to just take, not that there is pressure, but I want to just take a little bit of pressure off of you. You know, you're on the East Coast, close to Washington. We're out here, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Like this is, uh, um, 
there just isn't that view or perspective or that long memory or that sort of intensity yes. that you're framing it up with. Yes. It's just, you know, you're right there, but move 3,000 miles this, this direction. Nobody coming into an interview with you is interested in that. Yeah. They're interested in what you're doing in crypto, where you're I think, that, I think, I think that's fair. I, so I like bringing it up because yeah. I think as an entrepreneur, what – yeah, I find the left coast is very interested in, unless you tell me differently, is adapting, adapting and pivoting, resilience. I think West Coast people that are making investments in entrepreneurs are like, okay, can this person, man or woman, take the heat? Yeah. Can this person fail, but fail with some level of values, dignity, and some level of adaptation? You see what I'm saying? So that's why I like bringing it up. But I agree with you as it relates to the red hotness of the politics. I think it's re less relevant. What's relevant is can you get up after you've gotten kicked in the teeth? That 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 That's my point. Yeah, uh, well, 100%. And uh, so I'm going to let you get back. You know, I'm getting the hook on time. I'm going to let you get day. Thank you for the- no, It's a pleasure. I would uh, just I'd say like that to do a home and away. I'd like to invite you on Mooch FM. This is why oh, I get, yeah. I get yeah. to do the interview. Okay, I'm going to reach out to your team. Well, let's do it. Hey, thanks for listening. And be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.